Hey, all y'all bird nerds out there. This is Zan Mars coming to you live in studio, post-recording of our Weenos special. Now, I am going to admit here, um, this is kind of a somber occasion just now. Um, actually, after our Weenos um, special was recorded, it has come to light that we have made a grave error uh, referring to our surroundings as Weenus. Um, and it's actually pronounced Weenos. I was um, informed of that afterwards. So please, we do have a few times in the episode where we're going to say Weenus. Um, we don't mean anything by that, really. Um, we're not trying to offend anyone with uh, the saying of the word weenus, but just be aware that it is weenus. And so with that sort of disclaimer, um, we're going to go ahead and get started with the episode, and I hope you enjoy. Pacific Thought Foods and Borzai Books. Is that a dog reading in your reading room? Enjoy the show. Come all the way out to Weenus, Washington for our Weenus special on, you guessed it, birds. So stay tuned and get out there and go bird. First, a look uh, across the pond as we discuss the pros and cons of birding in merry old England. Then we return to Weenus for a quick game of spotter sound. And Tim's Report Corner, where we hear about Tim's... Latest report. Plus, ethics of birding, mind of a bird, and much more here on Avian Paragraph with the new season coming up. Well, thank you for joining us uh, for Avian Paragraph. I'm your host, Zan Mars, uh, here. Um, uh, in Weenus, Washington. It's a beautiful day here. Golden trees surround us, folks. I gotta say, these trees are not just green, but they're also gold. I mean, I, I can't tell you how much I do uh, like the color of the foliage on the trees, but I can describe it as being both green and gold, and uh, these trees are illuminated by a wonderful sunset out here in beautiful eastern Washington. That's right, you heard it. Weenus, Washington. Please come down and join us here on Audubon Road. 
we'll be waiting. Now, Zed, just uh, as we think about our listeners. Just a moment, Martin. Uh, if you uh, listeners will join us, we are joined in studio here, uh, and by studio, I mean this gracious surrounding which we're enveloped in here in the Weenus campgrounds by one and only Martin Salinas. Thanks for joining us here. Uh, how are you today? Doing just fine, Sam. And I, I wanted to add that the golden foliage that you were speaking of is... Dead air. And Zana, what I wanted to add is for our listeners, that golden foliage that you're speaking of, I really wanted to make sure that they weren't confused thinking that we were uh, in a stand of larch. But in fact, we are in a stand of... <laughs> That's interesting that you say that, uh, Martin. That is that is interesting. I don't think that listeners are going to be confused. This is a sunset situation, so the light is kind of illuminating the trees. You're correct. These aren't golden trees, but... <laughs> I don't think I was, uh, in, uh, I don't think any listener is going to infer that necessarily. But, again, a good point. A point well taken. Um, now on to our other guest here in the uh, studio. We have Timothy Lequi. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to have you here, Tim. Uh, it's a beautiful day out here, and uh, we've come out here for exclusively for something we're going to get to a little later in the show. Do you want to give us a little teaser, uh, sort of a taste of what you've been uh, doing out here? Uh, yeah, so I'm doing, uh, working on a research project, uh, looking at, uh, right. investigating, the, investigating the taxonomic status of the, I know. the Vesper Sparrow, Poesites Graminaeus. I know. All, all right, well, thank, thank you, Tim. Um, you're so, welcome. Yeah, and you're welcome as well. So, we now are getting on to the first order of business today, which is... Joining us from across the pond in merry old England. Um, everyone seems to love Britain. Uh, we have got a lot of these popular shows out now. Downton Abbey and the like. Oh, and I think a number of baking shows. A great British bake-off. Oh, yeah. Now, see, what's interesting is um, <laughs> the missus back at home, she's been watching a lot of Great British Break Off, making a lot of muffins and uh, baked breads, great stuff like that. And a lot of times with this new virus that's being out, a lot of people I've heard are, are getting into bread making. Anything uh, to report on that? Yeah, Zan, you know, what I was, uh, as I was watching uh, Great British Break Off, what I realized is it would have been... Uh, Maybe, maybe if they wanted to get their ratings a little higher. And I know it's a show with, with high ratings, but if they could have opened that tent up so that us birders could hear some bird song in the background, or at least provide an audio feed from outside of the tent so that us birders could really get an appreciation for not only the baked goods being created, but the avian life outside of the tent. Hmm. It is a show about baking, so let's make sure to keep that in mind. Um, now, uh, Tim, uh, have you, uh, seen any of these, uh, sort of television shows on, uh, Britain, Britain-themed shows? Uh, I'd have to say no. I have not seen any of them. Oh, okay. But, uh, just going off of what Martin said there, sure, I do, sure. I do think that is a pretty important point, you know. Oh, okay. Some, you know, not everyone watches TV shows or television programs to watch necessarily what's happening on the program yeah, right, right. i for instance have watched hours of golf okay. not to watch 
the players playing golf. Hours but of to golf. just wow. listen to hope to pick up maybe a bird here and there. Oh, in the background. In the of background of the, the picked up on the microphones the out on the. On Any the good course. spots while you're. Uh... Uh, yeah, you know, golfing I've, with I've, your eyes, so to speak. You know, every eyes now and again, up. you know, you pick up a red winged blackbird okay, or uh, okay. maybe a savannah sparrow. Oh. Um, now, Tim, uh, you must be familiar with the uh, probably the greatest birding controversy on the golf channel, are you not? Uh, refresh my memory there, Martin. Uh, it must have been in the mid aughts that the golf channel was actually caught uh, piping in fake audio of bird calls and songs that could not plausibly have taken place where that particular tournament was. Oh, well, all right, that's, that might be enough, Martin. We are on British, uh, we are on British topics here, so let's not toot our own horns, so, so to speak. I know in Britain they like to toot the horn, um, but uh, the question of the hour is, of course, British birds or birders? Which do we like more and why do we like them? Well, I'll, I'll weigh in here, Zan, and say that personally, I find uh, British birds to be fabulous. And while I have great respect for the birders across the pond, as they say, sure, I, sure. I also would add that twitching arose in the community of British birders. And that, oh, to me, yeah. is a sickness, a tumor Okay. on the community of birding. Well, you do hear these terms like twitching, uh, sort of these bird birderisms. As they, as they might call them. What's most profound, I think, really, ultimately, about these uh, phrases is that they're kind of uh, unique in the way that they're used. You get these British words such as knackered or, or uh, well, <laughs> I just thought of another one, but <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's not appropriate for this particular circumstance. But we do get a lot of these words that are coming from Britain. Um, so you're saying twitcher is a word that came from Britain. It is not only a word, but a breed of birder. Uh, and for our listeners who aren't familiar with twitchers, those are birders who will rush, they'll drop everything. They'll leave their own child's birthday to rush out and see a rare bird. And, and I don't judge anyone from that. Um, but the, the issue lies in that they will find the bird and upon seeing it, immediately leave without taking any time to appreciate how the bird is existing within its habitat. Uh, they don't take any time to observe the bird and maybe notice some of the really unusual or interesting behaviors that, personally, I find to be the most rewarding part of birding. Sure. Now, uh, Twitcher, again, we're coming back to uh, British bird words. Um, I actually think it would be fascinating to hear some British words, or sorry, some British uh, birding terms that aren't actually British words so much as they are words from other languages, perhaps. Um, Maybe a representation from other communities that aren't speaking English in England. And so, uh, Tim, do you have any friends, uh, maybe a colleague or, or someone in uh, England that you call upon in your darkest hour when you aren't finding that street-torn lark you've been looking for so, so often? Uh, no, not really. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, interesting that you brought that to the table. Yeah, I, I don't know if I... Uh... Well, actually, you know what? I do I do know one individual that I work with, mm. a man named Rod Gilbert. Ah. He is British, 
I, I like um, that. Could you do an impression of Ron? <laughs> God, didn't in there. <laughs> so a lot of, it is actually difficult. I've noticed occasionally I'll be watching a, a British show and it's difficult to interpret the way they use our English language here to uh, what what they're saying. A real you know? Coxney accent. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What what was uh, uh, what was his name again? Richard. What was he? Rod saying? Gilbert. What was Rod saying? Uh, he likes. He often is. He's a very hard worker. Speak from the rod. And he <laughs> he'll often say, uh, "Gotta go in there. Oh. <laughs> Gotta finish the job." Right. Right. He's, oh. he's, he's often telling us to finish the job finish and the to, job, right. to, to, to get in there. Sure. Tim, sure. I can't help but when I hear you uh, channel uh, Rob, uh, I'm really reminded of the, the, the tonal quality of voice. reminds me of a Caspian turn in summer. Ah, uh, yes. Very uh, coarse, mm. uh, coarse, pterodactyl-like. A, a, a grating sound to the ear. Yes. It seems like there's this parallel of an interpretation of a British birder where you do have this sort of, hello, how are you? This uh, British birder who might be looking for uh, some of these lower <laughs> echelon birds like pigeons or or crows or something like that. And then you have other birders who might, maybe their gear's a little shinier. Maybe they've got pleats in their pants, something like that. And these birders are more, hello, how are you? Could you show me to the lightest bed? You know, these birders are looking more in a proper one-on-one uh, -on -one feel with the, they look at the bird and the bird looks back at them and, and they realize uh, who's looking at, it's sort of a who's looking at who situation when you think about it. And it certainly, it certainly is the case that when they make it over to the States for a, a birding trip, maybe a big year, maybe not, that I think mm. we certainly deal with that upper echelon of British birders in our more day-to-day -day birder interactions. Uh, sure. but, but I also don't want the point to be lost, Zan, that it is true that there is an inferior class of British birders. Yeah, and also when you're talking about uh, British birders coming to America, that's an interesting point that you make. Maybe something we'll address on a later show, uh, British birders in America, having a segment on something like that. Um, it can be funny, sort of a, we call it uh, spotted dick in the apple pie, something something like that. I, I just gave up with that on the fly, obviously. Seeking but. the dick sizzle. Uh, all right. That's enough. Okay, moving on, we have uh, a game of spotter sound here on Aviary Paragraph, and that's coming to you after this break.
back. It's Aviary Paragraph. Or, uh, sorry, it's Avian Paragraph. We, we kind of switched that name around. Um, and we are now uh, joined for a game of Spotter's Sound. I decided, since I am your host, and um, oftentimes I've noticed that other birders might look up to me after watching the show, something like that. I, I put myself up, as they so to speak, against uh, one of our guests here. Uh, Martin, uh, Martin has a little bit more about this. Yeah, so in this Spotter's Sound, uh, Zan has taken the daring risk of pitting himself against none other than Timothy Lechby right in the middle of his research grounds here in Renus, Washington. The student has become the master. Or the, maybe the master has become the student. Something along those lines, I'd say. I'd agree. I'd agree. So, um, what's our first sound, Martin? The first sound for this particular edition of Spotter's Sound. Now, for, for those old-time listeners, you would typically hear the sound, and then our uh, two participants would then guess what the sound is. In this edition... We're actually going to ask that our contestants make the sound that I'm about to say. The first sound is going to be the song, so dearly beloved by Rachel Carson of The Fury. Zan? Ah, that's an interesting, that's a delightful twist on the rules, uh, Martin. I actually have uh, something going on with my throat right now. There's a abscess actually on the back of my throat that has actually, um, quite frankly, it's, it's going to be difficult for me to make any sound closely related to a bird, so, so I'm gonna have to pass on that one. Doesn't affect your speaking? No, it's, it's the, the abscess is lodged in a place in my throat where whistling or making chirping sounds, things like that, are actually very difficult for me. Well, to, Tim, let's go ahead and hear your your rendition. The thing is... Um, Seems our contestants are a bit bashful this evening. Well, I, like I said, I, it's not that I'm bashful, I just have an abscess, and so I, I would do that, normally I would, but... I, and believe me, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear me do that, but I, I, I can't right now. Well, we're going to move on to our second, we'll call that one a draw, but the second bird is going to be the Vesper Sparrow. Zan? Uh, again, um, the abscess at the back of my throat is going to make that pretty difficult, Martin. I'm going to have to take a, uh, a rain check, as they say. Tim? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I like... Zan said there, I was, you know, wasn't exactly expecting, um, I was more expecting to guess the sound, sure, um, sure. not actually make the sound, but, um, I think this is you, an instance, I of... mean, in, in, you know, in, it, we got to entertain the people, um, it's true, so I, I, I suppose I could, uh, you don't have to do that, shot. I think this is an instance of too many cooks in the kitchen, I think, uh, Martin, um, Maybe bit off more than he could chew with this one, folks. I might. We I think we may have to move on. This has been a wonderful example of our new season three spotter sound, and you can expect more quality spotter sound programming, just like what you just heard in future episodes. Again, on season three of Avian Paragraph. All right. Well, uh, we are about to uh, go on the break. We'll we'll be patiently awaiting to uh, 
entertain you all again, but uh, in, enjoy a uh, guest for, uh, a word from our sponsors. Stop. Now rewind. Have you ever thought what it would be like to rewind your life? Using a new technology to optimize your growth potential, we've now found a way to do just that. To achieve the true insights you are capable of. The only thing you need to seek has already been found lying for you on, you guessed it, the internet. Now with the ease of a telephone technology, everyone has access to the net at their fingertips. And with our urban forging platform, you will now be able to stop and rewind. and companion applications to add to your new phone technology. That's right, the internet is only a fingertip away, and this new platform is ready to be utilized and brought forward into the modern era. Grocery trips are a thing of the past, you visualize a world where you no longer have to look out a window, but rather can just reach for your telephone to see what's outside my window at the current moment, then rewind to what it was years before. Take yourself to new heights and explore your limitations with Urban Forager. Welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us here on Avian Paragraphs Weenus Special. So, of course, we've come to that part in the series where we've decided to explain what exactly is going on. Why are we in Weenus? Why are we here? Uh, <laughs> sometimes I ask myself. I don't even, I'm not even quite sure. But uh, I think part of the reason for that um, has to do with our next segment, which is Tim's Report Corner, where Tim is going to... Um, talk about and this is really groundbreaking research well that Tim I, I, I it is his latest report so yeah as far as my report goes um, currently I'm in the process of doing the field work um, collecting the data uh, this experiment actually is a blind experiment, so I'm exposing uh, Vesper sparrows to playbacks from two different subspecies, but I have it set up so that I'm blind as to which subspecies song is playing. So um, how do you go about finding uh, the, these uh, sparrows if they are blind, or how do they find their way about from... Well, uh, just to clarify, the, the, the sparrows are, themselves aren't blind. I know. Um, I know. The, the, 
the songs that are being played broadcast the stimuli to the subjects, Vesper Sparrows. I'm not sure I'm quite understanding. So do this, can the sparrows hear then as well? Absolutely. Absolutely they can hear. And so I play a pre-recorded uh, tape from a speaker broadcast. Right. Uh, the sparrow hears the song and reacts. I dictate to a recording device the responses, the behaviors of the sparrow, how many times it sings, how many times it flies, how close it gets to the speaker. And then I record um, initial location of detection, location of the speaker, weather, things like that. Um, so thus far, still collecting data. So there has not been any sort of analysis or writing of any observations that I've made so far. But, uh, so for our listeners who aren't uh, as engaged in birding or birds, is there any other take on this um, experiment you were doing out here in the woods that might kind of engage them or bring them into the fold? Uh, you know, with with science, it's kind of if you're interested in it, you're interested in it. And uh, if not, then I imagine it can be quite, quite boring. Yeah, well, you know, that's what I hear a lot of times from kids nowadays, uh, oftentimes aren't as engaged in the science as STEM work. I know it's not as engaging for a lot of uh, American students. I wonder perhaps if uh, British students, if they're more or less engaged, maybe that's another segment we can do, sort of a, a spotted dick in the classroom type thing. This is Martin Salinas and we'll be right back. Thanks for joining us again on Avian Paragraph, and we have next a great segment for you where we're talking more in depth about the birds that we all love to spot. This one is called Clutch, How Many is Too Many? Um, so basically, the question of the hour is, is a bird's clutch, um, is it too much to have more than one clutch? When is it uh, to the point where, where this bird's just wasting its time with all these clutches? I know that uh, some birds, they'll, uh, they'll come and have one, two, three clutches in a, in a uh, season there, and um, it seems to be... Are they wasting their time with that? Yeah, and Zan, just to bring our, our speakers, uh, our listeners up to speed here, I'd like to add that sometimes we can often think that birds are only having uh, one clutch or, or one set of babies in a season, um, when in fact they can have more, like you were saying, 
but I'd like to note that not only can they have more, but some of the most common backyard birds are actually some of the most prodigious breeders with many, many clutches. Uh, an example would be the American Robin, which, uh, truthfully, has two clutches uh, and often even more. Not terribly uncommon for a robin to have three clutches in a single season of breeding. So each robin has two clutches without fail, then you're saying? No. Okay, so how many clutches do these robins have? Typically two. Okay, <laughs> but the amount of clutches they have isn't exactly two. That's correct, Sam. But it could be two. It could be two, it could be less, it could be more. All right, so is two the right number for the robins to clutch at? You know, Zan, I don't think there's so much about right and wrong in Mother Nature. And so in this case, I'll simply say that the robins do, on average, have two clutches. When Anna Glover came to me and said, this is going to be uh, a segment, clutches, how many, too many, or one many, um, I thought to myself, okay, so we're going to sort of say, you know, come to a conclusion on this age-old question, how many clutches are too many clutches? And, um... I was thinking maybe you had an answer for that. You know, Zan, I do. And my answer is that the journey of discovery is really what this question is about. It's not so much about arriving at the answer. Interesting. Well, that's uh, similar to a lot of things I've heard uh, from other sources. So I, I think that's a very fascinating point. Um, Tim, uh, I'm going to pose a question to you. How many clutches for a bird, do you think is the optimal amount, and how many is too many? You know, I'd say two to three is probably the sweet spot. Um, when you're getting into four, five, six clutches, you know, that's just too many. Well, these aren't rabbits we're talking about, folks. These are birds. Is there a bird with a, with a max clutch, so you go and see this bird, and it's just one egg after another? I mean, imagine the omelet you can make from that. Well, it, does, it seems as if there's almost no right answer. So this is interesting that it's two to three clutches, but uh, is there anything else more to dig in here? I mean, uh, let's say a bird has a fourth clutch. Would you say this bird is bound for the dustbin of history? Or do you think this bird is going to be an evolutionary provider to come for the future of, of, uh, of its birding uh, uh, legion, let's say? I mean... The more clutches a bird is physically able to produce, you know, the better chances its offspring has of, you know, surviving the more offspring it has. A lot of these baby birds are certainly getting slaughtered on a daily basis, but, uh, you know, you have 12 of these things, one of them is bound to survive. Now, I don't want to get too political here, but I will also say that uh, it is possible that as these birds are having more and more eggs and they're hatching, that it could uh, uh, aid these birds in survival. And there are a variety of factors that could actually limit those birds' ability to survive. Huh. Again, uh, with, with no attempt to get political, but something that I wanted to add for our viewers to digest. Sure, um, now, could you be slightly more specific there um, in terms of that... Uh that uh, disadvantage of the bird having a large clutch, what exactly is the disadvantage? If what Tim's saying is correct, uh, wouldn't more little baby birds being around mean a 
better chance for survival. You know, again, Zan, I, I appreciate the, the press there. Um, and, and what I'll say in response is, this is really a question of, of nutritional inputs and, 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 and possible uh, uh, factors within habitat um, that, that could result in something that, uh, for, for our programming, might just be a little too contentious, uh, maybe too political in this day and age. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, politics aside, though, could you bring in with any level of specificity what you're trying to say when you've uh, claimed, made the uh, claim that uh, there are too many, um, too many eggs in the basket, so to speak? Sure, Zan. In the interest of total candor, I think for a lot of our uh, religious viewers, the idea of, of birds having this many clutches and, and procreating this much could be a little um, in, a, in a moral gray area, so to speak. A moral gray area? That's a very interesting concept. I was thinking if it is uh, disadvantageous for the bird to have too many clutches, uh, possibility could be the... Uh, I know this does sound somewhat invasive, but contraceptive products uh, for birds of a specific uh, type. So let's say we want to get rid of all the starlings in a specific area. You could potentially have little contraceptive devices you'd utilize with these starlings and you could squash the uh, bud before it uh, pre pre presents itself. You know, Zan, you bring that up and I'm envisioning it, and maybe this could fit within uh, the Green New Deal, that we have a Citizens Conservation Corps, which is actually going into bird nests, uh, hired millions of people, millions of Americans, hired each breeding season to climb up into trees and, 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 and deliver these contraceptive measures uh, to birds, both their breeding parents and perhaps even the young. Um, certainly, with, uh, with employ unemployment rates being where they are. I wonder the feasibility of a state-sanctioned program to do that, though, quite frankly. But uh, moving on, we do have a, another controversial question to address here, obviously. Um, this one goes into uh, another, uh, goes into a bird we've just discussed. Um, are Eurasian holler doves the new starling? So, uh, what's your opinion on, on this, Tim? Uh, well, Eurasian collar doves are increasing at a very rapid pace. Some would say they're experiencing a population explosion. So let's say, agreed, agreed. let's say birding was a marathon. Where in the marathon would you say the Eurasian holler dove is? I'm not sure I quite follow that analogy. Uh, if, if, if the populations of birds were running a marathon against each other, and um, let's say the starlings out in front, then you have more of a weakling bird. Um, I'm not sure what, what uh, you uh, know. Maybe a brown-headed cowbird. Sure, at the back of the pack, heaving to and fro, um, struggling for air, uh, perhaps falling and tripping on the, the ground, restlessly uh, landing, unable to keep up, so to speak. I guess I just have a trouble uh, linking a parallel between um, quantity and time. What about a different analogy? You know, let's say you got a bunch of little little kids, you know, and they're all- Or even birds, little they're, birds. They're collecting jelly beans. Okay, all right, yeah. I like this. And they're eating the jelly beans, you know. What flavor are these jelly beans? These are jelly bellies, so this is all flavors. Oh, okay, sure. 
I would. I'll just add that this program is neither uh, is is not endorsed by Jelly Belly, and the views of Jelly Belly um, do not reflect the views of Avian Paragraph. I will also add that I seem I tend to find those Jelly Flops bags, and I gotta say it's a great deal if you ever get the chance to get those Jelly Flops bags. Um, they're the the misused, misshapen jelly beans, and they taste just the same. So. Um, Go ahead and go for the jelly flops. Yeah, they are. They are quite unsightly, though, aren't they? Yeah, they are, but they they still taste good. Is the is the trick? Not unlike a Eurasian colored dove. The Eurasian, exactly. Bring us back to our point at hand. Right. So, so if if uh, populations of birds were small children collecting jelly beans, I would put. The Eurasian collar dove right up there with the Eurasian starling. They would be the children who've collected the most jelly beans. So, uh, hard talk here. Are Eurasian holler doves the new starling? I would say in sheer population uh, size and increase, you can definitely draw some parallels there. But I would add the caveat that uh, Eurasian collar doves, while competing with other native American dove and pigeon species, they do not have the same destructive behavior you could attribute to European starlings that are notorious nest destroyers and predators of native species. If I may interject with a point, Tim, um, I'd simply like to add, not yet. Interesting, sort of a threatening tone there at the end. Well, it seems like we'll have to move on to our next subject at hand, which is, of course, our favorite subject of all of us here at Aviary Avian. Do digital diligence, or as I like to call them, the three Ds of birding, eBird and location finding. Quite frankly, uh, when I, this segment was proposed to me, I wasn't sure what it meant. So, Martin, if you could uh, follow up with maybe a brief summary, so so I can understand this a little better. Sure, Zan. As, as eBird has, has really risen to the top and has become a ubiquitous tool for, for birders out there, we have to recognize that there's a, a real crossover from this analog activity of birding to the digital realm of, of submitting those observations uh, to, the, to the cloud, so to speak. And in doing so, some serious ethical concerns have come up as some birders are submitting observations in areas that are clearly posted as closed, um, or, or perhaps even private property, uh, and thereby, with intent or not, attracting a whole uh, group of birders to come and repeat their offense in, in pursuit of a rare bird. And so I think it's time for us, as an organization, as Avian Paragraph, to really take a stand. And I just want to reiterate those three Ds for all those birders out there, that it is time for us to take the pledge and that is the pledge to do our own due digital diligence, to recognize that footprint that we leave and make sure that we're not encouraging other birders to commit those, those acts that are really unbecoming of any birder, British or not. It's interesting that you say this now, Martin, because this reminds me actually of a story that occurred to me most recently, uh, as, as recently as about a week ago. I actually, if you don't know this, uh, I befriended my pool boy, Trevin. Um, he's a very nice young man and we decided to go out birding together just a few weeks ago. 
Um, and um, we went uh, into my neighbor's yard. We spotted uh, a couple birds over there. Um, unfortunately, uh, he's somewhat of a grumpy Gus. Um, when we were there, we did, uh, we were riding mopeds at the time, and it did cause a little bit of, uh, did cause a little bit of damage to his yard, and, and given that, um, uh, the effects of that, he was a little bit upset, so uh, maybe I perhaps didn't do my due diligence in that point, and for that, that, uh, fact I am, I am sorry, um, if that helps reveal any truths for you. Sure, Martin, and, 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 and Sir Sam. And I think what all I would all I would add is that in, in that story, I think that an important lesson was learned, and that lesson has very little, if anything, to do with do digital diligence. Again, right. these are the three Ds. Sure, because that happened in the real world. Tim, anything to add? Any personal experiences you've had in cases where either do digital diligence really saved and, or, or helped maintain the uh, status of, of a birding community, or on the flip side? Um, an example where due digital diligence was not followed, and the result was was kind of a black spot on a local birding community. Well, what I will do is give some advice to our listeners here. I mean, let's just be honest. We've all snuck into someone's backyard to see a cool bird. Like, I certainly have. I mean, you know. Guilty as charged. The, so, you know, be smart about it. Cover your tracks. All right, we don't want, you don't want anyone, you know, catching any flack here. So, you know, you can hide those checklists. You can, you know, change the location so it, uh, you know, maybe. I've always or in found the, no it, trespassing signs off putting. Yeah, in the comments, you can just say, saw from the road. Um, and I would just add that the idea of public land being closed is frankly an oxymoron. That if it's public, it, it must be open. We are paying for that land. I, I mean, personally, I think you should be able to access these private backyards and feeders to to see the cool birds that await so you in know. many countries it's called the right to roam and i propose Turning that this in this back country, around to britain i've heard of this before we don't call it a right to roam here but we introduce it as legislation the three of us will be writing our representatives and it will be called the right to bird that's interesting i see i'd like it to have more of an american feel perhaps the right to hog given that you are hogging the land when you roam throughout it. Well, this has been a great couple of discussions here on our Weenus special. I just want to thank uh, both my co-host and guest, uh, Timothy Leckley. Thank you so much for joining me here. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for inviting me and Martin out to uh, come and, and witness this uh, beautiful sunset here in Weenus, Washington. Absolutely, Zane. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. I'd like that very much. Me too. And of course, Martin Salinas. Thanks a lot for coming along. Hey, you bet you, Zan. And I'd just like to say, uh, in closing, get out there and go bird. Oh, I'm sorry, I almost forgot this. I'm sorry to say, we do actually have Mind of Bird uh, segment to follow here. This one I hear is called In the Swallow's Orb. Sounds fairly interesting, Martin. Um, do you have anything to say before you actually go into the Mind of the Bird as we're all hearing you? Well, Zan, uh, this, this particular uh, 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 incident that I'll be talking about discussing, this, this was quite a powerful experience for me, as recently I happened upon a, 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 what could be described as an abandoned overlook where cliff swallows had been constructing a nest for some time. And upon walking up, these cliff swallows were, were dismayed uh, at my arrival uh, and, and took to 
evacuating their nests and, mm -hmm. and uh, somewhat painful experience began yeah. giving out uh, quite furious alarm calls as they many of them uh, circled around me forming what you called uh, an orb of swallows I would be too quite frankly when my alarm goes off in the morning I'm furious Well, that really is something. Thank you so much again to all our guests for joining us here in Weenus, Washington. And that has been the Avian Paragraph Weenus, Washington special. 
Thanks again. I'm Zan Mars signing off here in Weenus, Washington. And of course, as always, get out there. Go birds. The following audio was from a live music session recorded at the studios of KBU Community Radio in Portland, Oregon. More information about KBU can be found online at kboo.fm. AB Repairgraph is produced, directed, and edited by Zen Mars, with special contributions by Martin Salinas and Timothy Leckley. With special support by Pacific Thought Foods and Borzoi Books. Featuring music by Kit Kat Club. Peg the Rejected, Al Jolson, Chad Crouch, Nocturnum, D. Yankee, Kylo Kaz, Nameless Dancers, Kevin McLeod, Kai Engel, and the Garcia Birthday Band. And if you find the time to review us on iTunes, YouTube, or other digital formats, please do, as it really helps us out.